0: everyone and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. That was like an awkward
1: pause. My name is Todd Hickson Ball, aka the Todd father aka I'm sitting with Caleb Mason the awkward pause guy.
0: And we have a great episode for you today. Today we are going to be talking with recording hip-hop artist Taylor Gray.
1: I feel like I'm cooler because of this episode. Because Taylor was such a cool guy to be able to interview. I'm so excited to be able to share um, this episode with everybody. But, Caleb, we have a new segment. Well, I mean, it's been going for a couple weeks now. But you know what I mean. We have a new segment where we provide you with a Learner's Corner approved resource of the week. Caleb J. Mason has the resource of the week this week. Caleb
0: what is it? My resource is a podcast. Who knew? And it is called the Battle Ready Podcast with Erwin McManus. Now you may be familiar with Irwin. Irwin is one of my favorite people to learn from because he thinks in just a completely different way.
1: One of my favorite pastors to learn from.
0: Yep. And so I recently yeah. started listening to this. I've listened to about two or three episodes so far, and he kind of he starts out with the pod a podcast about how to think and how he thinks and kind of his thinking process behind everything, and then um, he talks about mental health as well in another episode. And so that's one episode that he always continues to challenge my thinking. And so that's one person that I'm learning from right now.
1: That has been your Learner's Corner approved resource of the week.
0: Now this is a great episode that we're bringing to you today and we're talking with taylor gray as well and if you may not know this but this month is black history month
1: hashtag awesome sauce
0: and so we thought it'd be pr- appropriate to talk with taylor about you know hip-hop his story as well as you know racial reconciliation whenever it comes to the church As well. And this isn't, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know this is a topic that we talk about pretty regularly on the podcast as well. You know, we love to learn from anything and everything.
1: One of the cool things is we kind of come at it, I mean, Taylor comes at it from the perspective of, you know, he actually, his day job is he works in a church. And so he, he talks about, you know, uh, some of the things going on in churches and, and how churches can begin to bridge this gap as well. So not even so much on a societal level, but within churches. And so um, if, you, if you may be like, hey, I'm not a church person, this is still for you because it is a microcosm of what's going on in society. And so this is going to be a great episode to listen to. And by the way, he talks about some of his favorite hip hop artists.
0: So buckle your seatbelts. Here's our conversation with Taylor Gray. Well, Taylor, welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast today. We're so excited to have you on.
2: Man, I'm glad to be here, man. I appreciate you guys.
0: You know, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into hip hop and then, you know, kind of the impact that it's had on you?
2: Um, hip hop is is uh something that has been very formative for me, um, despite my parents' best efforts. Um, you know, I grew up- <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in church and, um, you know, it was kind of an environment that strayed away from uh, just, you know, content that was explicit, graphic, things like that. So we listen to a lot of gospel music, clean music, things like that. But inevitably, you're going to meet somebody either in school or um, just through association. Friends, when you get away from your parents, they're going to introduce you to something that you shouldn't listen to or that you shouldn't see. And so it was kind of like that forbidden um, element where I was being shown something that I shouldn't see or interacting with something that was shocking considering uh, all the other things that my parents wanted me to get into. So hip hop was was introduced as, number one, that first maybe expression of rebellion um, from everything that my parents wanted me to do. And uh, it was my cousin, Cameron, who really took me under his wing and it discipled me of the ways of hip-hop what quality was what was good what was bad what was um historically significant and the stuff that i should be listening to and building my catalog from so that was probably about fifth grade um getting into sixth grade but my first favorite artist in hip-hop my first favorite artist was puff daddy Uh, (laughs) really yeah, man, it wasn't like, you know, everybody, everybody
1: usually says either Biggie or Tupac.
2: That was my cousin. My cousin came in and he gave me some instruction about, you know, what I should say publicly. I should never tell people publicly that Puffy was what I liked, <laughs> but he was a Biggie guy, like most certainly Biggie all day, every day. And I understand that a lot more now, but I'm not ashamed to say that Puffy was my That was my introduction, man. The the No Way Out album, um, the first video that I ever, like, that first resonated with me more than anything else was More Money, More Problems, and that's a Biggie song, but Biggie was not alive, so all I saw was Puffy and Mace on there with their shiny suits, so.
1: I love that. This might be the best, like, reason for somebody to like something that I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) 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 I love that
2: yeah yeah i mean it's it's dope man i mean i i felt like since my cousin shamed me after that like i i owed it to myself to really dive into um what more people people would say is authentic hip-hop so there was a departure from just like the whole shiny suit glitz and glam getting money and things like that into more of the underground stuff as as the years followed and then the catalog got a little bit it got a little deeper. Than what's, that.
1: Your, what's your favorite Puffy like album, mixtape, whatever? Oh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I am curious now.
2: I mean, that's just a super hard question. Like, you that's know, rough. we're fickle. We're fickle people just by design. So our favorites can change given the climate. So I say, right now, um, I'm I'm pretty fresh off of going to the the Jay Z concert in Cleveland. Um yeah. so I have to go with reasonable doubt just okay. because I'm I'm feeling loyal right now. But um if if I'm if if I take a step back just from being in my feelings then I could I could <laughs> say something I could say something like a and I by Outcast or um uh the Black Star album uh most deaf and Tale Quali. Love it. Um, so yeah, those, those would kind of, those would circulate in my, my favorite albums, Common, One Day at All, it Makes Sense. Yes. Or like Water for Chocolate, uh, Education, of Lauryn Hill, stuff like that. See,
1: now for me, for me, I would, I would agree with you with the Jay-Z thing. Okay. I would Okay. And, and, and that took me a long time to be able to say that because, you know, Caleb and I, as, as the listeners know, we're, we're both pastors. And so we're like supposed to tell people that we don't listen to
2: that kind of music. <laughs> <laughs> <Like> yeah <this. laughs> I used to be one of those guys um I, I still am depending on who I'm talking to exactly like, exactly. You, to, like you gotta break
1: that out like insert- only certain conversations yeah like if you're listening like if you're talking to a to a thirteen year old you're supposed to be like, listen, you need to listen to to Carrie Job in this moment, <laughs> like Carrie Job, and that's it yeah forever yeah now if I'm talking. With, with one of my buddies, I may say something different.
2: Well, I mean, I would even extend it to say it depends on what kind of 13-year-old I'm talking to. Like, I,
0: I agree on know, that one.
2: Be, because, you know, I think a lot of 13-year-olds now know a lot more than what they let on. That's probably
1: true. That's probably yeah. true. And they'll, they'll tell you, like, so I'm a youth pastor, so, like, they would tell me right now that, like, Lil Yachty is, like, all they listen to.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, and and then I would feel like it's my obligation to show them Jay Z. <laughs> <laughs> like if if that's what they're telling me, then I would have to play the role of my cousin and come in and say, you know, you you probably need to you need to be acquainted with this just to understand what the significance of hip hop is.
1: I love that.
0: So Taylor, do you remember the because you you also have you know, albums of you know, of yourself. And so do you remember the first time where you thought that, you know what, I might be able to make it as, you know, like a hip hop artist and produce your own music?
2: Um there's kind of two answers to that. Um, because before I made my own albums as a solo artist, I was in a group. Um so I was in a group with my brother and, and one of my best friends and we all started rapping around at age 14. Um Chris was, was 12, I think, like so he was younger than us. But, you know, we started to just kind of conceptualize stuff in in my best friend's basement. And they weren't like really like thought out full songs. We were just more like, you know, freestyling and, and battling each other. But then we started to actually try to make songs. So around 15 or 16, we actually went out and started doing shows to kind of test how good we were. And I'll never forget our first opportunity to do that was this talent show uh, near downtown Columbus. And we went in and we did this song that we made and we thought it was the greatest song in the world. You're just going to blow everybody away. And the song was so trash. And <laughs> we did not win the talent show and that crushed us. Like we were not as good as we thought we were. And that just motivated us to, to to go even harder. So as a result of that, we did get better. We did improve. We took that blow and and we used it as a as a learning opportunity to to continue to improve. So by the time I was you know out of high school, um, you know maybe early into college years, we had pretty much developed the confidence that that we belonged and that we were able to do it pretty well. Um, but for me as a solo artist. Uh, some years after that, maybe uh, probably about seven to 10 years after that, um, I had to kind of reinvent myself as someone who wasn't just a part of a group and as someone who could make my own songs. Uh, and that took, that took a few years. Uh, I got some stuff out on Bandcamp right now that will give you an idea of the process before I started releasing stuff on iTunes. Um, and, and just for streaming consumption in general, but yeah, that was that was a that was a, a pretty significant turn for me to to try to gain some confidence about what I had to say as a solo artist outside of the context of being in a group with two other MCs. So I would say for me, recently, uh, uh, maybe about three or four years ago is when I, I began to develop a confidence to say I had. Uh, what it takes to be able to put out something that was quality.
1: So you, this isn't the only thing um, that you do uh, w- with music. The other piece to that as well is you're actually a, you're a pastor as well. So yep. Talk to us a little bit about that and your journey
2: there. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I would con- consider my um, primary vocation. Um, being... A pastor is is something that is informed by my experience in music. Um, As I started to, uh, you know, walking back to maybe the years right before college, I was going through kind of a spiritual transition where I've been raised in church, but I pretty much rejected everything that the church had to offer. I was able to kind of play the game and be the church kid and be who I needed to be to my parents. But I was a completely different person at school, um, a senior year in high school. And then when I finally started as a freshman at at, uh, the Ohio State University, then I was just a completely different dude. I was in the club all the time. I was, you know, pretty out there from just with the with the ladies and um, experimenting with drugs and alcohol um so i I kind of let myself go in that arena, but all at the same time, a part of my disguise was getting together with the guys and writing these christian raps mm. so it was it was kind of weird because I was just drawing from my experience as a kid to be able to come up with the vernacular to to put in songs as a Christian rapper while I was living a completely different lifestyle so um my second year in college i really came to christ i i I left my entire sinful lifestyle behind I turned to Christ I repented and, and and God changed my life like legitimately gave me a new mind a new heart and that informed my music to an on another level and instead of being the guy who was just kind of on the fringes and just using Christian language to to complete a Christian song I actually had a conviction about the things that I was writing and that soon turned into Just diatribes. The way that I wrote was very preachy and the way that I wrote was very direct and um, gospel message oriented in in an explicit sense. Like, I'm going to tell you the details of what it means to know Jesus and know what it means to respond to the gospel. That's going to be the content of my lyrics. And even beyond that, performing those songs, there would be times in between the songs where I would just go on full out preaching tangents. And, you know, we'd be trying to make it through a set list of songs, but I would just stop and start exhorting in the middle of all that. So that I discovered a a desire to to hone that in preaching and and become more skilled in understanding how to handle the word of God. And as the years followed, you know, the, the conviction grew in that arena and, and lessened a bit in music. And I started preaching at my local church and started um, leading the youth at a at local church, started leading a discipleship group and outreach opportunities at, at my church. And um, the years that followed, I was given opportunities to serve in leadership positions and, and to serve as a pastor that um, was not on staff, but but was still preaching. In, just at in, in different intervals and to now um landing as a as a staff pastor for the past year and a half, so the journey started kind of in the music realm and and you know God kind of used that to translate some of those uh, opportunities to speak publicly about the faith to a, a passion to preach the word and and to shepherd his people.
1: Can you talk to us a little bit more about you talked about how you were kind of living this double life and you used music? as your way of still being connected and, and, and that was kind of your cover per se, um, for, for being, I think this is a story that I hear a lot just from, from any, from a lot of people where, you know, they, they kind of were living this double life. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and kind of how you, you worked, worked yourself into a spot where you were like, Hey, um, I need to take this seriously.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, I was, Pretty much like most other human beings in that stage of life, just um, really just a people pleaser, or, or just kind of given to that that identity that you know I wanted to feel secure by what other people thought of me. So um, my direct environment at college was not going to be a friendly environment to to have a a conviction to be a Christian. You know I was room I was roommates with with a a ton of guys who were kind of into a a different scene and and I was curious about that so I wanted to learn more about that but when I got back home or or um I got around the other guys to talk about music like you know they weren't going to be they weren't going to engage with me on this curiosity that I had about quote-unquote worldly things you know we were going to keep things above board and and still be honest with with one another about music. But we weren't going to kind of let that overlap into life and and talk about how I was having sex or how I was using drugs and how I was spending money going to parties and and just doing a ton of other things that did not line up with the Christian message. So for me, I think that double life just just became a survival tactic um, so that I could maintain whatever kinds of images that I projected. You know, whether I I wanted to keep this relationship with my my best friend and my brother so that we could continue to do music, I used that as an opportunity to maintain that Christian image. Whether I wanted my parents to think well of me, I used that as an opportunity to maintain my, my Christian image. And then on the flip side, if I'm out partying, I didn't want those guys to think I was a step behind in terms of experiences and and things that we mutual interests that we shared. So I went and took it to the next level and and I partied hard and and you know I smoked a lot and you know I I went after a, a ton of women and you know so I just didn't want them to feel like I didn't belong. And the further apart those those two worlds go, the the harder it becomes to to maintain both of those lives. So that's that's pretty much my state of being uh from the beginning of my senior year in in high school all the way through my sophomore year in college.
0: Were there any times or was there a moment to where, you know, your two separate lives like conflicted and there wasn't a a time for you to like you could no longer keep up the facade of one life. You had to like they both both your worlds intersected. Was there ever a time like that?
2: Sure. There's several times. I mean, my my parents weren't stupid. I think my mom was a little more naive. My dad had, you know, he he kinda has a radical testimony. Like he came out of a lot of stuff. He he grew up in the streets. So he knew when I was, you know, kinda drifting away. Uh I never forget uh I came home one evening while I was in college and I just stayed with them because I was gonna go to church with them the next day and you know, I had just smoked a ton of weed and um you know, was, you know I was abusing drugs at that point, and I was at the house and it was probably about one or two o'clock in the morning, and you know the phenomenon of of smoking a lot of marijuana creates these random cravings at different times. so what I did was I decided to get up in the middle of the night and cook an entire pan of fish sticks and I'm just thinking back on how that even looked. I had this whole pan of fish sticks just by myself in the kitchen that I was just eating directly off of after I cooked them. And my, my dad came downstairs and he was just like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I wanted some fish sticks, dad. And I'm, I'm dipping them in ketchup in the pan oh, while I'm looking at him. And he's just like, you need to stop. And And- It could have been, you need to stop doing this right now, this action right now, or it could have been a broader statement of you're making some bad choices and this is headed in the wrong way. I took it both ways to where at that moment, I couldn't maintain the facade of of being like this Christian guy. There was obviously a problem. Even though I was home to go to church with my parents, my dad was seeing right through that. And then we went to church the next day at the time. You know, I, I had a little bit more of a of a disheveled presentation uh, because we just make you not care sometimes. And I went to church, and I could just tell that it just the environment didn't match up with what I was living. And I sat very far away from the preacher, and 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 even listening to the sermon was just like this weird interaction of. Of like something that I knew I was supposed to believe versus what I was actually living, and I, I just felt the impasse in that moment. And and, and other other than that, just kind of more on a just direct level, uh, my best friend BJ, we come together and write songs, and he knew I wasn't I wasn't living what I write. So one what, what I wrote, and he gave me a nickname. He started calling me One Third. Because I was one third of the group that wasn't living what I was writing. And he came at me pretty strong a couple of different times, which was like, Man, you you're out here doing these things and you don't even believe this. Like this is this is not what we're supposed to stand for. And he tried to convict me a number of different times and I would just laugh it off. But those those opportunities to to kind of face myself in um the ways that I was I was diverging from who I presented myself to be. Those those came often, and I think that they were just kind of protection mechanisms from God. Wow.
1: So um, we just wanted to. Show, by the way, thank you for for sharing for just sharing that the those stories. But um, we wanted to shift gears a little bit um, and, and begin to talk to you about something else that you're also I think really passionate about. Uh, we recently were at a both, Caleb and I were both at a conference uh, called Together Conference, and you you were you were one of the speakers there. And uh, one of the things that you you said is you were talking about uh, diversity within the church and you were you were talking about just a bunch of different things. But one of the the questions that I was really interested in talking with you about is diversity on on a staff, like a church staff and how uh, you had a line that you said uh, where you talk about how you're the only person of color um, on staff. And you're also one of the only people of color in the entire church. So can you talk to us a little bit about diversity within the church and 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 currently where it's at mm-hmm. where you would like to go and 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 kind of define what you would like it to to look like because I think I think for some people you think well you know do we do we are do we want you know people of every race represented on staff like what does that look like for you and and when you talk about diversity like what does it look like within the church
2: Yeah um <laughs> So I think that a lot of this this idea is is pretty undefined. I think we're still in concept stage as far as what we all want out of this. Um, I think we've we've at least kind of gotten to the point now where we're we're acknowledging we have a problem. Um, but in in some of our efforts to try to address the problem we're still ignoring the things that cause the problem. So diversity is is kind of like the, you know, that's the pitch, or that's the buzzword. It's like we want this diversity thing. Um but, you know, the ways that people will will try to to make the effort to create diversity or or, or ascend to this concept of diversity undermines the very concept itself so if if you say you want more black people more asian people you want more hispanic folks from the latino community um or even gender gender yeah you want more i i mean i don't know how that works in in a church general context because typically the ladies outnumber us but i know that translates to the staff
1: that's
2: what I that, and that's what yeah, I meant. Yeah. Yeah. The more yeah. Was that, with the staff. Yeah. That translates to the staff. So, then, I mean, the more we start to peel back these layers, you know, the more we could become uh, intimidated by just the gargantuan problem that we're staring at and how far we are from actually reaching this place of of harmony with one another. So I say as a black man. um. You know, there there are certain elements that people will communicate that they want uh to see in the church that expresses diversity and, and that, you know, generally may just mean more black people uh fellowshipping with white people. You know, so that's that's kind of a baseline definition is like we want to see black people and white people fellowshipping together in harmony, in in a in a authentic in an authentic expression of the gospel. Okay, cool. So what does that mean? What does that look like? For, for some people, that may mean that um, you just want the photo op. You, it's, it's, it satisfies you just to have some black people there visually that, you know, are, are helping to balance the metrics or the statistics of, of your membership population. You know, that's 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 good enough for you to just have the the flyer or the brochure or the pamphlet that says we're all about diversity. And then we take this picture and you see some black faces in there with some white folks on a deeper level. There is kind of this this shared identity where, you know, you don't want to just be present in in a situation, but you want to feel accepted. You, you want to, to have some level of connection and, and authentic relationship with the people that you're fellowshipping with. And I would say on the, on the other side of the coin, that's what diversity looks like for um, the minority groups who are trying to aspire towards diversity. They're not just looking for the photo op. They're looking for actual connectivity and authentic relationship with people who are different from them. And if you have two different goals in mind, and one side says we're satisfied with this, and another side says, well, we're not going to be satisfied until we have this, then we're going to constantly just like live in this thick tension of of disappointment, frustration, anger, um, a just a misunderstanding one another, and, and ultimately, for a lot of people. Apathy you know, where people just start to say, "Well, what's the point? We just need to just back away from each other and leave each other in our our respective tribes so when I think of diversity, I think again we're just still in concept stage of actually defining what it is we actually want. what are we looking to achieve, and how do we listen to one another to 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 bridge the gap of how we got here and and take that very um, intentional step towards something that's mutually beneficial, and I don't think we've we've even come close to that yet.
1: So here's my here's I guess a follow up to that is, and this is a big question by the way. But um, how, so how? Because I, I definitely see the difference of what you're talking about. So how is a church? We'll we'll start first on staff. How 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 can as a staff? Uh, maybe the senior leader or whatever, begin to really put into play, you know, hey, we want this to be more than simply, you know, like you said, the, the photo op thing. How do we really begin to intentionally make this part of culture? And we'll start with the staff, and then I'd also like to apply the same thing to, to like, the congregation as a whole.
0: Yeah,
2: um, staff seems to to be the... Uh it always—I don't want to say always—often seems to be kind of like the the target because it, it seems like the feeling is is once the leadership changes, then the leadership will will impact those who are following or or those who are are under their jurisdiction. It'll it'll just trickle down in that way. Um, but <laughs> the staff dynamics. They always kind of come with this this maybe unspoken level of, of ego and competition. So depending on your church environment, you're, you're, you're maybe developing this equitable situation where, you know, everybody's heard and everybody's listened to on equal playing fields and everybody's perspective is, is appreciated. You're developing that or you're, you're in a scenario where there's the take charge guy who's pretty much just going to intimidate everybody and their way is ultimately going to be the way for everybody because they're the strongest personality in the room and and that plays out in this whole diversity discussion where depending on the environment that you've cultivated if you if you've cultivated an environment that is pretty equitable and and there's there's a space for everybody to be heard and to be considered then maybe you are equipped to move forward in the diversity angle as 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 a church because you've already developed an environment to where you're posture to listen and to be and to to express humility and and to apologize when you've wronged like you've already developed that atmosphere but in most church environments that I've interacted with there's the decision maker and everybody's placating to that person or everybody's trying to gain the favor of that person or everybody's just just going with the flow of that individual who just has the strong voice and the strong vision. And when you have that in place, you're not equipped for diversity at all because they're they're not in a position or a posture of listening or learning or hearing and, and trying to understand. They're essentially telling you this is what's going to solve it. No matter what you have to bring to the table, no matter what perspective you may bring to change, I guess, the idea of what it looks like, then the dominant personality is going to win out. And what I would say is, on, from a, as a black man who has tried to ingratiate himself with majority white staff, what I often encounter is the power dynamics or the control dynamics are not equal. So I can be put in a position where, on paper, it says that it's important, it's valuable, it's it's something that is going to contribute towards change. But at the end of the day, I am not a part of any real decision here. You know, I I'm just a person who fills a slot that presents the image of progress. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a person who. Makes the decisions who may be, who may have amassed more resources or who may have more money or more influence than I do, and that's going to come into bear in terms of how this entire process plays out. And eventually, I'll I'll um, either be outright silenced or or I'll be ignored as just the status quo. So those power dynamics are really key in trying to understand what meaningful diversity looks like on staff. Where you've either cultivated this equality between one another in in the way that you interact and listen and posture yourself to understand, or you just have decision makers in place who aren't necessarily trained or skilled in seeking out that that kind of interaction with somebody different from them
1: so let's say that that we live in a perfect world which we know we don't, and we have cultivated this, we have done that work. How does this that how do we then apply this to the congregation? Is it simply, hey, um if you do this on staff it'll 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 work in the congregation as well? Or you know is are there things that need to happen?
2: Oh I I think I think it's both. I think it's it's the fact that you have the witness of its success on staff is important. You know you need to be able to have that testimony to say We've actually seen this work well, not we're just we're just exploring these um, these abstract concepts concepts because they sound great. No, we have the testimony. We've seen it work out. It has improved our dynamic. And now we all share this conviction to implement this in the congregation. And so, yeah, things need to be done. There are very purposeful steps that should that should take place. I mean, there's not a one size fits all for all congregations. But I think if you have the right people in place, you have the ability to be strategic about how this plays out in certain ministries or if you have small group settings or if you have just kind of general congregational worship considerations. Like there are specific steps that have to be taken. It can't just be this osmosis type of interaction with how we move forward. No, we have to challenge people. You have to you have to give them opportunities to engage with the issue itself instead of just hoping it all plays out. So, yes, I mean, just to, to, to answer your question, um, it's, it's not an either or it's just yes, it's, it's yes, we need to see it happen on the staff and then it, it needs to be done. There needs to be an action plan or strategy for it to be um, for it to be a reality in the congregation.
1: So here's here's my next question, kind of following up with, with with everything that you just said. Um and it might be a little controversial, but is is diversity something that every church should seek to have? Or is it like one of those things where um churches in some areas should and, and other churches shouldn't? I'm just curious.
2: Um I think in this country, yes, we should seek for it because um our country's history has been one that has caused the separation. Mm. Uh, You know, it's it's not something that just happened, you know, it was uncontrollable circumstances. No, there was there was an, an effective strategy to separate us. So now there is cause for us to take the initiative to put back together what has been broken. And no matter what we have to sacrifice, no matter what we have to 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 endure, it's worth it. The cause itself is worth it, and, and it has to be a gospel emphasis because we broke it. it. It has been completely broken, and that is the testimony we have as a country. I can't speak globally to that end. I know that there are similar ways this played out. This has played out in other countries, but I can speak to the United States of America, and I think it, it behooves us to be uh, intentional and energetic in seeking this end here in, in our immediate context.
1: What's the church's role in beginning to heal um, this divide?
2: I think the church's role, first and foremost, is confession. Um, I think we have to be the ones who are are able to articulate uh, in detail what the divides are, why the divides exist, our part in them historically. and and essentially, what kinds of measures we're willing to take to um, to, be, to be able to progress peacefully? Um, I think that there are. I use kind of the, this perspective of like there's these faux confession, confessions or fake confessions that sound like they have a sense of what what you know, <laughs> pain and and um just wreckage has been racked up across generations and infrastructures in this country there's these confessions that sound like they get a sense of that but then they they don't necessarily turn into a conviction to change much of anything and i think that what the church in america has looked like is is a an, an elaborate display of knowing what we're talking about or conceptualizing the the theology that scripture presents to us and packaging it in impressive ways that that give us this display of gospel maturity on an academic level but we are painfully inadequate as it relates to application and an actual holy spirit driven witness of Jesus being the center of our lives. So we can articulate it so well. We have, you know, the manuals and the manuscripts and and these volumes of information from people over generations. But when we actually look at how it's played out, we're we're very, very baby Christians, you know, and and I think that the, the rest of the world can see that. I think globally we wouldn't want to admit that because we're supposed to be such nationalistic um you know torchbearers or flag wavers. We are we're the United States of America, we're the best country in the world. But our Christianity, the witness of our Christianity globally, is a very baby Christian kind of expression, I believe. Because we are we are still struggling with this same issue that is centuries in the making. So I think the church has to lead out in confession of that and owning that and saying, as much as we hate to admit it, all of these things that we have that we preserved over the years that make us look like we're a sovereign Christian nation or we are ahead of the curve missionally and we're ahead of the curve theologically, all those things mean nothing. Or they, they ultimately don't produce the type of witness that we would want to have based on the biblical requirements that we have ignored over the past hundred years. So I know it's kind of a a controversial conclusion and depending on whatever space that I would be in and articulating that I may either get a round of applause or I may get ran out of the room. But I really believe that. I really believe that that's that's where we are, is that we we have we have to still. Put together an authentic confession and a and a and, a, and a model a repentance that looks like action more than just a uh, an emotionally heartfelt statement.
0: Well, I mean, I think I can speak for Todd and I. Like it's for it's conversations like these, which is the reason why we created the podcast or have the Learners Corner podcast because there's something to learn. I mean, literally from everyone, even if it's uncomfortable or even if it's controversial. But switching gears a little bit, you know, I just want to ask you, you know, you know, is is there a difference between, you know, whenever you address, you know, whether it be social justice issues or race issues, you know, is there a difference between addressing those in your music and your preaching? Yeah. Yes, there is.
2: Uh, I I have, I feel like I have more freedom in music. Um, It's art. You know, you can you can at least if you want to say it like this, you can hide behind that veil of of whatever is artistic is subject to interpretation. Um but you know, some ways in some ways there there's opportunities to be direct and just say it flat out in the music. Otherwise you you know, you may try to paint this picture or use different literary devices to to communicate the same point. But there's more liber- there's more, more liberty in music to express it um, just because of the nature of music and the nature of, of hip hop and and rap. Like that expression came from pain. Um, That expression came from hardship. So it's, it's not hard to translate some of these difficult topics into um, like a, a piece of artwork called hip hop or called rap. So in preaching, you know, it's very linear i mean you're you're communicating something directly and and it's and it's not necessarily something that um you you remain kind of like the you're, you're you're the one who decides what the message is like you're not the one who decides what the message is or what the emphasis is like god is the one who determines the beginning and the end of that so as a preacher you know i can take opportunities to express truth uh, from the word of God. But, you know, I have a very deep conviction to make sure that it's not just me on a soapbox. It's it's not just me coming to my conclusion about this opportunity to express what's on my heart or what pains or ills me. And if, if I do do that, then I'll make that distinction and say, like, this is me. This is where I'm at. This is what I'm struggling with versus just Opening up the word of God and letting God speak and saying this is sufficient for us, black, white, Asian, any other uh, ethnic persuasion in the room. This is the word of God for humanity. And we are all subject to it, um, no matter what baggage we bring to the discussion or no matter what baggage we bring to this place of corporate worship And, and preaching to me. Doesn't allow that latitude to, you know, insert and interject my own personal feelings or or perspectives or opinions uh, as much as music.
1: One of the things that um, I've heard often uh, is is people talk about. You know, it, sounds, it seems like you know the, the, these hip hop artists, these rappers, all that they want to do right now is is talk about is talk about just social justice issues and how everybody is, you know out to get us and, and all this stuff, and, and we're, we're tired of it. Is there a difference to, for you between simply talking about social justice and and then how it actually should be talked about through the, through the lens of the gospel? Like, is there a difference? And if so, uh, what is that lens that we should be focusing on with social justice as it pertains to the gospel?
2: Well, I think that's one of the main disconnects of the diversity discussion is you know there are people who want to to create this false dichotomy of you know whether it's the gospel or it's social justice and and where we often find the the disagreements that are the sharpest there are are people who are who are trying to either hold that dichotomy up as if it exists uh, and then there are others who are saying no it's it's all intertwined like you know you don't separate these these things as if you know they have their own individual platforms to turn to Jesus and to trust him for salvation is to insert yourself into issues that affect the social spectrum uh it, it is to advocate for justice it's not something that you you can turn on and turn off so you know when people have those comments about music i, I most specifically I think the, the majority of the time they're talking about hip hop, you know, they're, they're talking about rap. They're not just, they're not talking about any other music genres across the board as, as much as they're talking about rap as specifically. And, and, and that just goes back to the history of hip-hop. hip hop, history of the history of hip hop lends itself to arrive at the reality that it's been political. It's been social. It's been cultural from the start unapologetically. And this medium is just is being used to its its truest form to articulate the ills of the day, to, to to articulate the reality of the everyday man's struggle. That's that's the medium. That's the art form. And so when people get frustrated about that, it's like, well, you know, how much do you really even know about this medium or art form? Like just because you listen to Lecrae doesn't mean, you know, hip hop, you don't know nothing about hip hop. And and for many, Lecrae was their introduction into hip hop, and then they they crown themselves hip hop heads or people who appreciate hip hop on some level. Or for some other people, that may be Kendrick Lamar. And I'm I'm speaking of majority white audiences where they're like, oh yeah, I listen to Kendrick, so I know hip hop. It's like, no, you don't know hip hop. Like you don't you don't know the full measure of what it means to communicate a social reality over decades, no matter what. The, the circumstance and that pain and that heartache and, and even some of those moments of, of joy. And, and I mean, just flat out ratchetness, like ratchetness, like you, you, it doesn't resonate with you why people are ratchet. You know what I'm saying? So you don't get hip hop and in the way that you, that, that certain individuals would try to create this dichotomy that it's, it's, you know, your, your emphasis on social justice is a departure from the gospel. Well, it depends on how it's being articulated. Sure, there are individuals who articulate social justice issues or, or communicate their perspective on what needs to be done in, in a godless form of expression. They don't have a solution or they are just apathetic as if there's no, there's no way anything can change. But then there are people who are just telling the truth about the way things are. And just because they're telling the truth about the way things are, then they are departing from the gospel. And I'm just that to me flies in the face of any of the apostles of of the of the first century or first century Christians who would have just articulated the reality of the circumstances around them. in very like I would say in your face types of elements of persecution where the social dynamic of, of the, the government itself was opposed to their existence. So them articulating that to someone else is a departure from the gospel. Well, it's only a departure for the, from the gospel if that's the only conclusion you come to. But if you articulate what's really going on and then you turn the corner and say, but my hope is built on nothing less, Jesus' Jesus blood and his righteousness, then you're not leaving people hopeless. You're not leaving people apathetic. You're just communicating the reality of the circumstances that you see and then giving more power and glory and exaltation to the gospel, despite the things that you're subjected to. So I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to, and I don't agree with the false dichotomy that people, I believe put in the face of a lot of the way the music is created now Um, Because I think that they do that just to distract from engaging with the issue itself and to actually taking on the responsibility that we are not dealing with what's in front of us.
1: That's great. So uh, one of the things that I'm that I'm interested in, because you talked about this a little bit at, at Together Conference, is this question of what would you what would what would you like for white people or the majority to know that they don't know?
2: Um. I mean, that's a touchy that's a touchy question, because, um, you know, there's some things I don't want the white majority to know, you know, and I think that's just human nature, because you don't know who you can trust with certain information. Sure. Um, So certain things I don't want the white majority to know. It's just a measure of trust. I don't know what you would do with that information. Um, but you know, certain things I would like the white majority to know is that the black experience is not just the caricature that has been ingrained in a lot of the minds of, of, of white upbringing. So if you're living in a majority white context, then maybe your only interaction with the black experience has been a caricature has been entertainment has been uh news media has been the one black person in your high school or your your high school class you know that's a caricature that's that's not everything and it actually takes effort to find out what what's true what it really is so i would want white people to know that their conclusions that look like a caricature are not complete. So you you may you may you know depending on who the audience is you may not want to accept that or you may back away from the table and say you know you can't tell me what I do and don't know. Um, to that I would respond with yes I can tell you what you do and you don't know because you don't know this and there's a reason for that. It's because you don't want to know or you haven't taken the step beyond whatever comfortable scenarios been created for you to understand something that you don't know. So for for black people. We are constantly um, put in a position to where we have to live up to the caricature to be accepted. And we are way more complex than that. We are. I, we are different across the spectrum we don't always agree with one another we don't have a monolithic voice all the times even in in the social conversation we're on different sides of the spectrum and and we and we downcast one another we disagree with one another on a variety of issues so a lot of the things that i would want you to know would depend on the context of your engagement why would you need to know these things? If you want diversity in your church, then there are specific things I would want you to know. If you want to send your kid to a, a a public school in the inner city, there are certain things that I would want you to know. If you want to develop a relationship and and gain a black friend, there are certain things that I would want you to know. So I think the question. Really begs the context of you know why I would share the information with you, um, just so I would be helpful for you, or, or that it would be helpful for you in the long run.
0: Sure. You know one one thing that you know I, I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, Taylor, is that you know is that there tends to be you know a lot of churches that you know maybe only white people attend there or maybe a church that only black people attend, or Hispanic people, or Korean people, or whatever it may be. And so I was just wondering, you know, why Why do you think that churches tend to either lean towards, you know, the minority or the majority? Um, the
2: majority has always existed, uh, you know, at one, one point or another. Any minority is, is trying is forced to conform to the reality of the majority. So the majority is always going to have a place. You know, that's that's just going to be a mathematical fact. Um, but for minorities, I speak specifically to black people, is, is we were not accepted by the majority. You know, we were in many ways forced into our own um, bubble of fellowship and communication and uh, culture because the majority, imposed upon us rules and, and and requirements that, you know, we just didn't live up to. So either we were mistreated when we were there or we were just outright told that you can't be here. Um, and so I think for, for us historically, that's played out to the reality that we see now is now we develop a comfort level being around one another, like the minority experience, I'll say for black people, um, a lot of the the, the black experience in what would be called a black church has to do with entering into a safe space. Like where you you know what it means to have to interact with majority culture all the time, all day, every day. You have to conform to certain standards that are not your own, certain social norms that you were not a part of creating. Um, but that's just the reality of the society. So you have to figure out how to navigate those things. But when you go to church and you worship God with other black people and, and you, you are able to be accepted for who you are. Like that is, that is an environment of safety. You know, you're not going to be questioned as to why you articulate yourself in this way. You're not going to be questioned as to why this particular emotional response was a part of your expression of praise, or you're you're not going to 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 be questioned as to why your services are so long or why you dress this way. You just get to be. You get just to come and be who you are. And that is a that is a haven for a lot of black folks. And and it was for for me in a way that I can now reflect on in hindsight. Um but it's it's now like the struggle of trying to integrate or or engage with uh the majority is, is like you have to in your mind set out to know that you're giving up that safety zone. You're giving up that comfortable place where you can be and express who you are to the fullest. And some people just don't want to do that. They're just like, you know what? No, I'm gonna stay over in my minority context because I don't want to have to give up the things that I know to be good and right and true. Just to make someone else feel comfortable I don't want to do that, and I already have to do that in society I already already have to do that in in the education system or or the professional world or you know just various aspects of of interacting with majority culture. I already have to do that I don't also want to have to do that when I worship God or when I express my um, my authentic love for Jesus in community. I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to give that up. So I won't. So I think that's, that's, that's why a lot of black churches remain you know, staunchly the way they are, because they just don't want to have to apologize for who they are. They don't want to have to conform and, and to change um, because they just don't think that there's a need. And And that will be where they remain. Unless somebody from the majority community comes to engage with them and positions themselves to learn from the minority community, um, and I think that's the way it's going to be uh, for I think as long as we're here on this earth.
0: You know, I just want to follow up on that. You know, I think um, I think Todd and I would agree that it's important for the majority, you know, to, to learn and to en- to engage with minorities, whatever whatever culture. That is it's all, I think it's always important for the majority to engage um, the minority why why do you think it's i mean first of all do you feel, do you feel that way too and if so, you know why why should the majority engage the minority
2: yeah um I think it is important in very specific ways. I think it's important to engage with minorities uh, on their turf. Um, From the perspective of their tone and on their terms, I believe that that is the proper way to engage with minorities. A lot of times what I've experienced is um, there are white folks who say they want to engage with different cultural expressions or experiences, but they still want to control the way that it happens or they still want to, to tone police the conversation. Or they they want to bring people into a, a safe a place that's safe for them or that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable, and and to add all those caveats just completely dissolves the the sincerity of wanting to understand the minority experience because we don't have that option like we 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 don't have the option of creating a utopia that allows us to be whatever we want to be in society and society not only embraces it but celebrates it as a majority norm. We don't have that. We have to constantly conform. So I think with with a lot of white folks, it's really difficult to understand what it means to sacrifice those things. It's really difficult to understand what it means to embrace being uncomfortable, to embrace not having your preferences catered to. It's that process is like it's it's almost instant. You can detect it instantly because you've you've known no other way but to to have the things that you want in the way that you want them. Whereas as a minor as a minority, like we have trained up that muscle our entire lives. And we have to figure out how to adapt and how to how, how to fit ourselves in, or we won't survive as citizens in this country. And uh, I think that's what the 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 difficulty is, is the struggle is is getting that message through, is to say like, all right, I hear you that you want to engage with what this is, but you know, how much are you willing to give up at the first sight of of you being uncomfortable? Are you going? To, are you just going to run? Or are you just going to dip out? And that's it, because that's typically what I've seen is like, oh no, we we don't, we're uncomfortable and we don't have to be uncomfortable so we're gonna leave. Rather than, we're uncomfortable, but this is good for us and we're gonna stay until we develop an appreciation for the things that are different from us.
0: You know, just as we're getting ready um, to wrap up, I just have a couple more questions. The first is, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, you know what would be? What would you say would be the first step for like a senior leader in a church if they want to? And let's just assume they want to engage, you know, diversity for the right reasons. What would you say would be the first step?
2: Um, oh man, man, those those these questions always feel like so weighty because it's just like, man, I have to say the right answer. Uh, but <laughs> I would say i'm gonna just take my I'm gonna take that responsibility off my back, and I would say, and the important step would be to have a very sober conversation with the individual that you that you have in mind um to help with that transition um i I think those conversations on the front end, man, they're so important. And 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 I and I have to I have to say this because those conversations can they can just just pretty much just sink it or devolve into just this uh, cycle of excitement and and hopes and dreams and possibilities instead of the hard sober facts. You know, if you if you're a majority white church and you seek this diversity and you seek to hire the staff as a measure of expression of that, and your church is moving in this direction, a hard line fact as a result of having that kind of conference conversation is that people will leave your church are you ready for that are you ready for the financial impact of your budget uh, are you ready to sacrifice certain um, relationships that you have or people will interact with you differently because you've taken this stance that kind of conversation has to be had so that at least your your your're placing some integrity behind the effort itself. And then I think another important step probably should be done before you even have a conversation with the person in mind is, is to take a hard look at where you are as a church. Like what is the reality of your church? How distant are people from this kind of conviction? How well are individuals, leaders, in your congregation able to articulate, how well are they able to articulate the importance of this? Um, And just be honest, because a lot of people just don't want to face the reality that their congregations aren't there. And they have to do a lot of groundwork before they can even take the step of hiring an individual to quote unquote, solve the problem. Because they just don't want to admit that racism is more prevalent in their congregation than they would have ever dreamed and if you're not taking that important step to to investigate and get a pulse of where your congregation is as it relates to these issues man you could just be pushing forward with a, a sort of idealism that like almost exists in an alternate reality because when reality hits man like you, man you could really have a hard time pressing forward
0: Okay, now I got another question for you. So, to the person who isn't the senior leader or isn't the decision maker, what advice would you give to them?
2: Uh just as a minority or just like just an individual. Uh, like
0: so, like someone on a st- like a staff who isn't um who isn't the senior leader or isn't the decision maker, but wants to engage in diversity, you know, in their church.
2: I think I think it's, it's a similar from a different vantage point, obviously, but um, a similar kind of uh, piece of advice is, is is to get a pulse for the church. You know, the, the staff person who's not the senior leader, or the decision maker um, may not necessarily feel like they wield the influence to change everything from the top down, but they can begin to do the wet legwork of, of developing an understanding of their immediate context. Um, They can have discussions in their small groups. Um, They could, you know, take a a friend out for coffee, not necessarily a black friend. I think it's even more helpful to take a white friend out and just have an honest discussion. Um, Or, you know, they they could be the mole that's inserted on a certain social media platform to just stir up controversy and see how the membership acts. I don't know, you know, like but but getting that pulse. And being the person who, who once the discussion is had amongst the entire staff, be that person to be able to stand up and say, hey, I've done some legwork and some research on this. This is where I feel like we are based on the certain measures that I've taken to try to investigate. To be able to offer that hard data or to, to offer that informed perspective can can be really, really vital in in ultimately coming to the right decision or not now again that depends on if you have like that environment where everybody feels equal to contribute because if you've got that strong leader who's who's just type a and is just going to make the decision whatever they want to do regardless of how you uh how you feel about it then you may feel even more discouraged to find out that after you've done all this legwork and, and maybe you find your church isn't there yet that strong leader says, no, I think we're there. I think you're wrong. We're going to push forward in this anyway. And then on the back end, you're, you'll experience something 10 times more frustrating because then you'll be like, I told you this is where we are and things are worse than ever because you didn't listen. And I've seen both sides of that coin.
0: You know, Taylor, one question that we always love to, include, or to conclude our interviews with is the question, what are you learning right now? And this could be literally about anything. So, what are you learning right now? Oh, man.
2: <laughs> man, okay. Um, I am learning about society's engagement with mental health. Um, I'm just, just as a general piece of curiosity for me personally um i am learning how people are unwilling to admit that they that there's something wrong in their life or that they need help um so just kind of as a general rule where i could either go to the extreme that we're overdiagnosed as a society uh, and then go to the other side of the spectrum to where we're just we're just too prideful to admit that there's something wrong with us um i'm I'm learning how to interact with the the mental health aspect of uh churches uh how churches are to engage with the real um, just uh, tangible problems that we as people are dealing with. That we may or may not ever admit in our life, the actual traumas, the actual chemical imbalances, the complexities of people's family upbringings and things like that. And how does the church grapple with this without just trying to paint this broad brush, broad brush, uh, Jesus is the answer to everything um, solution that actually distances us further from the problems than acknowledge how jacked up we really are. So I'm learning a lot about that. Um, I'm learning a lot about myself in that. Like what types of things have I admitted I need help in and um, what resources do I have available to me to seek help? Um, You know, is therapy viable for the Christian? Things like that. Like, you know, I'm I'm really kind of I'm curious about that. And and I would say just as a a number two and, and a number two that's rising and may take number one in the next few months. I'm learning about the impact of male patriarchy and rape culture in our society, um, how that's affected us all, has that, how that's affected all men in my generation. Um, I don't know about the previous generations or the ones that follow, but I know about my generation, and I'm thinking through just different ways that um, subtle seeds have been planted in my mind in terms of how to treat women. and and the value of women and you know how to sincerely repent of that and to engage with that in, in such a way that makes women feel heard and and um and and make them feel safe. So that those are some things I'm learning.
0: Well Taylor thanks so much for being on the podcast today with us. If people want to continue to learn from you or get your music how can they do that?
2: Um uh, again go to uh, Twitter, Instagram uh, I'm at Taylor underscore Gray, that's T-A-E-L-O-R underscore, underscore Gray, G-R-A-Y. I'm on Facebook, first, last name, Taylor Gray. All streaming platforms, anywhere you can get music, uh, probably the easiest thing would be to Google search just my name, Taylor Gray, and um, you'll be able to find me in, in any number of those mediums.
1: Caleb? What's your takeaway from our conversation that we just had with Taylor Gray?
0: There was a a lot of them, but one of the things that really stood out to me was a sentence that he said, and it is that the majority should engage the minority on their turf from the perspective of their tone and on their terms. And I think far too often, you know, as the majority... Um, and with me being in the majority, I can tend to expect the minority, or whoever's in the minority, to meet me on my terms, how, how I think they should engage me, when really, if we really want reconciliation in the church and, you know, for the sake of the gospel, then we need to, as the majority, be willing to meet the minority on their terms.
1: Yeah, I agree. And the other thing that I think about is um, Dr. Martin Luther King. And so one of the th- big things that he would talk about is he, d- he wanted to have um, what he called the, the white church or the majority church be able to begin to speak and to stand up for um, m- minorities as well. And one of the things that he was critical of, um, particularly in his letter to, uh, from Birmingham Jail, is uh, the white majority, especially uh, leaders in the white church, uh, pastors what have you um, the fact that they were they were not willing to stand up and, and 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 become uncomfortable really is what it came down to they weren't willing to as as you said meet the minority on their terms they wanted them to come to them and fit inside of the bubble and that's why they they didn't stand up and speak out and say hey this is wrong what's happening and so I guess it just reminds me, um, it reminds me of, of, of what he's talking about in the, in the letter from Birmingham Jail. Um, and also, I mean, it's a, it was a major message of, of the civil rights movement, which is, hey, and, and by the way, not just the civil rights movement that happened in the 60s, but also kind of this movement that's been happening now, right? Where, and we've talked about that in previous episodes of um, you know, the, the majority needing to not only speak up, but be, being willing to go outside of their comfort zone and being willing to engage in things that are uncomfortable or in unknown territory for them to be able to elevate the voices of, of, of minorities, of minority
0: groups. Yeah, because as the majority, the majority has the power. And yeah. to quote my favorite superhero, Spider-Man, with great power, comes great responsibility."
1: He didn't actually say that. It was Uncle Ben, but that's
0: semantics. It's fine. Either way. We, as the majority, <laughs> we have the power and we're we're responsible for you. I sooner. got the power. <laughs> I just needed to do that. And there's no other way I can finish my thought. So thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. If you enjoyed it, leave us a rating or write a review of our podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use. You know, check out some of the show notes for the quotes or from some of the key takeaways. That we learned from Taylor or check out our recommended resource from there. And then you can let us know um, some of the things that you've learned um, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and let us know some of your takeaways or some of the lessons that you've learned or what you're currently learning. We'd love to hear what you're currently learning about.
1: Rate, review, subscribe, guys. We love to hear from you. And we also love the feedback and it also helps to be able to elevate things. So
0: until next time, my name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd akson Until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.